I was trying to Google funny jokes to uh, start off the podcast. <laughs> I just had a bag of cookies. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. I'm ready to go. Are you? You have that sugar high? I have some kind of high. These podcasts take way too long to record. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the cast. The PCP. This is Gabe. In front of me. Uh, what, what's I forgot who's what it's called. Who's in front of you? You. I got Steven in front of me. That's true. Just two guys in a back room after hours. It's dark. You want to light a candle? Really set the mood? The last time I lit a candle, I almost got fired. Oh, yeah. That's a fun story. Boom. Oh, it's also a pun. It's true, you're, you're, and it's a pun. Your cutting wick is once again cutting wick. <laughs> <laughs> is that real? Good things just happen to good people. It's great. No, I was going to say you're, you're too fast. Your wit is too fast for me. Ready? Draw. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched... Wit. Have you ever watched any of those spaghetti westerns with like Charles Bronson or Clint Eastwood? Yeah. I, my, I da- didn't, my dad is like obsessed with them. I wish my dad had been obsessed with them. Really? I just watched a scene from Once Upon a Time in the West where Charles Bronson's character draws with Henry Fonda and those guys are lightning fast. I could never be that fast. I don't even have the energy to tell you that I don't care about what you're saying. (laughs) All right, you lead. How was your Groundhog Day? (laughs) Did you see any shadows? I saw the Groundhog Day Super Bowl commercial. That was awesome. Yeah, it was good. How great was it last time to have someone else in the room besides just us? It was really nice. Yeah, your wife is very intelligent. Shout out to Steven's wife, Allie. Very intelligent. That's true. And it was just fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. We need to have a third person on here again soon, or else I'm going to lose it. (laughs) (laughs) We will. Cast time. Yeah. Wait, what? Cast time. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Cult Popcast. Your one and only stop for all things pop culture. Unless you're listening to other podcasts. Yeah, and hopefully you are. It's never good to get all your information from one source. Or in this case of this film, the dominant political party in your country. (laughs) This is a semi-spoiler-free podcast about pop culture. We spoiled Little little Women pretty hard. <laughs> well, we decided to. So are we going to stay away from that in this? Yeah. We just did it because, you know, the book had been out for ages. Gabe, I have a question. What yeah. is pop culture? Why, why don't you tell me? <laughs> pop culture is a conglomeration of everything that's happening. Oh, my God. In the world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's entertainment. It's books. It's movies. It's video games. It's music. What's your favorite thing about pop culture right now? Uh, using it. Is it the Iowa caucus? <laughs> no. Well, politics has permeated pop culture in so many ways. Like memes, for instance. The advent of memes in this decade. You can you can make fun of anything, and it hooks onto social media, and all of a sudden pop culture is now including stupid things like, you know, politics. <laughs> exactly. In recent memory, the Iowa caucus and the disaster that it was. That happened there, there's, the day before we recorded this podcast. We've been going through the nine... Best Picture nominees for the Academy Awards. Today is our eighth podcast, and we're doing... Jojo Rabbit! Jojo Rabbit! Jojo Rabbit! I was thinking like this, the Sega theme song, like... Jojo Rabbit! I never played Sega. Like Sega! You never played Sega? I didn't have a console until like So you're, you're definitely not going to see Sonic the Hedgehog when it comes out. I can't think of a movie that's come out recently that has interested me less. 
and then Sonic the Hedgehog. There's been a lot of crazy, terrible ideas that have turned into movies in the last year. We had Cats, Doolittle was a disaster, but Sonic the Hedgehog is the one that blows my mind the most. So today we're doing Jojo Rabbit. Question, Gabe. I have a yeah. question for you. Okay. What's that, Steven? How would you define satire? Oh, I wasn't ready for that one. Oh. Satire is the process of making fun of something or making light of something serious in order to criticize it or uh, analyze it in such a way that it uh, it is more approachable. Okie dokie. <laughs> so, Gabe. Steven, how would you define satire? I wouldn't. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Thanks for that. I would Google it and then tell you the answer. Cool. Let's do that. Because we're not capable of free thinking here in this podcast. We have to go immediately to the internet to answer all of our questions. I would define satire as the use of humor, irony, maybe exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. That's like most- Particularly <laughs> in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. That's literally what I said word for word. And I think there's never been a better time for satire than right now. There's never been a better time to make fun of World War II. (laughs) (laughs) There have been a lot of World War II movies that have come out since World War II. (laughs) That's World War True. (laughs) Oh, snap. I think that was the worst joke I've ever made on this podcast. Gabe. Gabe. Yes, Steven. Gabe. You want to ask me what this movie's about? What is this movie about? This movie, Steven, is about a young boy in Nazi Germany's Hitler Youth who finds out his mother is secretly hiding a Jewish girl in their home. He is accompanied by his imaginary friend, who also happens to be Hitler. And it's actually based on the book Caging Skies by author Christine Lunens. I didn't know it was based on a book. Did you know that? Yeah, especially when I looked it up. Today? Yeah. The story there is Taika's mom read the book circa 2010. And she told him about it, and he was interested in it. And he wrote the screenplay a year later. But he wasn't able to get this movie made for a decade. Fox Searchlight finally came in. In the words of him, him being Taika, Watiti, who's the director. In Taika's words. He said, said, so so I went and made three other films, and then I came back and made this movie. I don't know how to do his accent. It's terrible. I'm sorry. That was was a fair attempt. I can't do a New Zealand accent. He's so (laughs) suave, man. That yeah. guy, I I really envy his charisma. A little confidence goes a long way. Let's talk about the budget. Yeah, let's talk about the budget. How much was this movie's budget, Stephen? Fourteen million. That's very small. It is super small. <laughs> I thought it would be more. I also did because the costume design, the production design, and all the set pieces, everything was pretty extravagant. I would say, but yeah, they wow. did a lot with a little, apparently. And and worldwide, how much did it gross, Gabe? Not a lot, comparatively. It was $65 million since releasing in October, because it wasn't playing for a while at all the theaters. So, How many Academy Award nominations does this movie have? It has six, Gabe. Wow, what are they? <laughs> Best Picture. Cool. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Nice. Best Film Editing. Uh, Best Costume Design, which... <laughs> Thinking about that Sam Rockwell costume is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, Best production design and best supporting actress in ScarJo. I think it's got a a good bet for at least a couple of those, specifically the design. Yeah. And he already, maybe screenplay as well, because he just won the BAFTA and something else. And you're you're all about that awards momentum. Yeah. Gabe loves throwing that. Awards momentum. (laughs) The momentum toward the Academy. I'm just telling you what people are thinking. I'm trying to let you know 
how the system works. Listener. Let's talk about let's talk about Taika Waititi. He was born in New Zealand. Met Jermaine Clement at Victoria University of Wellington. He's the dude from um, House of Cards. No, what? He, no, he. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking? Jermaine Clement is one of the main leads in Flight of Concords. They formed a comedy stage troupe, the Humor Beasts. Taika Waititi acted locally and directed short films that led to Eagle vs. Shark that came out in 2007. Taika directed some Flight of the Concords episodes. True. He then directed Boy in 2010, uh, What We Do in the Shadows in 2014, and then directed Hunt for World of People in 2016. And then he made Thor Ragnarok for Marvel, breathing new life into the Thor franchise, especially after the disastrous other two movies. I don't like them as art house indie films. I like them as um, corporate, lifeless yes. cash grabs. No, not specifically okay. Thor two. Yes, but I also like them as chapters in a larger story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, chapters that you know you didn't even need at all, like Spew and Goblet of Fire. To be honest, yeah, I don't think they were that bad, but they couldn't really hold up against the better Marvel movies. Oh, totally. In fact, seeing Asgard for the first time in Thor one still gives me goosebumps. Are you sure it's not the fact that you're naked and you're cold? And I watch it alone. Yeah. Naked? Outside. Have you seen What We Do in the Shadows? Um, I've seen actually part of What We Do in the Shadows. It's very good. They actually made a show off it because it was so successful. Right. And now that show is doing well. Yeah. He reteamed with Jermaine Clement for that. Flight of the Concords was pretty unique, the way it approached musical comedy, but it was also a show. Everyone was everyone would sometimes break into Flight of the Concords song. We'd done it. Just wanna do something special for all the ladies in the world. Oh, Peruvian. Presbyterian. It's really good. You should check that out, uh, listener. The Mesopotamia. <laughs> Presbyterian. I love that video so much. The music video is what makes that song. Yeah. And Taika wasn't as uh, obvious because it was Jermaine Clement and... Brit? Brit. But he was still, I think, a creative mind behind it. The only reason I put that he had been in that comedy troupe with Jermaine Clement before at college is because that was kind of like a precursor. The Humor Beasts was sort of a precursor to Flight of the Concords, I bet. Would you bet money on that? Uh, Yeah. Small... Money, pocket change. I'd bet. I'd bet on <laughs> a couple quarters, maybe even a dollar, maybe four quarters. Anyway, we can move on. Okay, who's the director of photography? It was a Romanian gentleman whose name, man. We have a lot of DPs in this series that I just can't. I. It was. I want to pronounce this. Do it. Me, Mihai, Mihai Malamar Jr. I think you're getting farther away. No, it's Malamar. Mal- one more time. One more time. Mihai Malamar Jr. That's fair. And what has he done before? He worked on The Master. He shot that. Recently, he did The Hate You Give, which was one of those social commentary pictures that came out last year. And then the editor is Tom Eagles. What a fantastic last name. He's done a lot of work with Taika before. He's also done a lot of television editing. The Spartacus series and Ash vs. the Evil Dead. I was really surprised to see Michael Giacchino. That guy's like everything. Michael Giacchino is the composer for Jojo Rabbit. Is that how you pronounce his name? What about Giacchino? Because he's Italian, right? Uh, Some of the stuff that he's done. The Incredibles, Lost, Star Trek, Jurassic World. The new Star Treks. And then uh, Super 8. The new Spider-Man as well. I liked his Super 8 score a lot. He seems to team with J.J. Abrams, like you said. Who are the actors in this film? 
I'm so glad you asked, Stephen. The young up-and-comer who plays JoJo, the titular character, it was Roman Griffin Davis. That kid was great. I think he's going to go on to do even greater things. Thomas and Mackenzie as Elsa, who's also incredible. Scarlett Johansson as JoJo's mother, Rosie. She's up for supporting actress. She did really well. She's probably the standout of this movie, I think. I mean, the kids were great, but she's like the heart of the picture. Uh, Sam Rockwell as Captain Klenzendorf. Amazing character. He he and, really and uh, the guy that played his Alfie Allen lover yeah Alfie Allen was his implied gay lover. He was Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. I wish they did a season seven and eight for that show. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, maybe one day we'll see. We'll get George to finish his books and then we'll make a new series. It'll be great, dude. For real, they probably could do that. Uh, also, Stephen Merchant was in there as the head of what we think is the SS. They were going around checking for Jews, that sort of thing. Bad people. Rebel Wilson was in there. Yeah. And then Taika Waititi played Hitler. <laughs> but he wasn't the actual Hitler in that sense. No, he was like JoJo's impression, impression of Hitler. Of Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was a great little FU to Hitler because Taika Waititi is himself They did that in such a, a smart Jew. way, I thought. You or know, of when, Jewish when descent. They, when he rubs the poster on and as his hand crosses over it, he sees his version of Hitler versus the actual Hitler. thought that that was pretty smart. And then also on that note, there's at least one or two scenes where Taika's character, the comedic, quirky exterior melts away and you see flashes of the brutal mm-hmm. and very cruel Hitler mm-hmm. that was actual Hitler. Mm-hmm. And you see that bleed through and he approaches Jojo in that mood or temperament. And it's terrifying. It's legitimately scary because this whole time he's been this funny character. Quirky, yeah, funny character. Yeah, kind of light, kind of friendly and approachable. And then he shifts gears immediately once or twice in the movie. But it was great because he's a uh, of Jewish descent, so he's like, "What? Who better to play Hitler in this satire than uh, than me, the Jew?" This movie is a treasure, a lot of heart in it, and a rare occurrence, I think, in Hollywood. Yeah, you see these kinds of movies a lot from Wes Anderson, and again, this is a really unpopular opinion coming from me, but I, um... you hate Wes Anderson. <laughs> You can say it. I don't hate Wes Anderson. Be real. Because every, every podcast I've been listening to, you're always like, you hate this person. You hate this person. <laughs> I don't s- hate Wes Anderson. strongly. Bottle Rocket is actually one of my favorite movies, but it's also his first and maybe best movie. <laughs> so what, what did he lose then? That At least for you. Originality. Originality? Yeah. He How always so? makes the same thing. Yeah, but he's... It's still he is his it, brand is originality. His brand is not originality. Yeah, that's his brand. This, no he, one else he's makes not, movies. He's not like Hal and Ray's. It's not like you make you make this great chicken sandwich over and over and over again. That's what it is for most people. Yeah, but I don't want to like with with film. Do yeah. something else for once. I, I see that. I get where you're coming from. This movie is if Wes Anderson did something else and did it so well but that what is it, that, that it became else? original again. Anyway, it's I, like parody. Yeah. To me, it's all the same. Anyway, I want to talk about okay. Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, you were just comparing this film to Wes Anderson style. And it, it did feel like that. You saw this movie before me, and I asked you, does this feel like a Wes Anderson film, except everything is not framed, you know, dead center in the middle. And you said, yeah. yeah. In tone, yeah. Yeah, in fact, this could pass as a Wes Anderson movie if it was shot differently. If he just angled his cameras. <laughs> and I, now that I think about it, I, I kind of probably disagree with that a little bit. Shocker. Really? Yeah, because oh. I, I think the characters were a lot more rich here usually in a Wes Anderson film I I feel like he directs his actors to be very deadpan in almost all of their delivery and and this this movie was so full of life 
and the actors all had so much going on, I think, beneath the surface and, you know, in their eyes and on their faces. It was so colorful and just in a way that I don't think Wes Anderson captures very often. Yeah, I um, would agree. It still invokes Wes Anderson in terms of the quirky template. But you're right. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't as rigid. It wasn't as strained or as you might feel it to be contrived because it did have the looseness. I think a lot of that just comes out through things like camera work and the more technical aspects. Like I, I look at Moonrise Kingdom and I can just see those characters are a lot of the time interchangeable for the kids at least yeah like jojo's friend that keeps popping up throughout the film who's like i'm still alive (laughs) he feels like a character ripped straight out of moonrise kingdom those sorts of encounters i think uh it would draw from wes anderson i feel like taika has such a voice yeah there's a lot of heart there's so much heart in everything that he does not just jojo rabbit and i think that's the differentiator between him and wes anderson i think jojo is up to this point, Jojo is basically the culmination of all of Taika's talents. Like starting from Eagle versus Shark, and when he made Boy through Hunt for the Wilder People, you have these family dynamics. There's complicated characters, and they're going through something difficult. And through that, they come closer together. They have that mentioned when we were talking about his movies initially, that emotional core to them. This movie shocked me. I didn't expect a lot of the things that occurred in it to occur. It started out very, very satirical and very lighthearted and comedic. It's pretty wild what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, pretty intense stuff. The language and the the things that they're doing. Training kids with grenades and throwing knives. It's all intense, but it's kind of played to be funny. It's played up, but it's always grounded in, in reality. I mean, the whole opening monologue is him basically getting amped and screaming, Heil Hitler. Yeah. And then he goes screaming it through the streets. <laughs> But the heart in the movie is the thing I didn't expect. And toward the end, it got very adult and very mature. There's that scene toward the end with Sam Rockwell, where Sam Rockwell essentially helps him. Yeah, that was a gut punch. That's something that I didn't expect along with the other big twists in the film. Um, I didn't expect this film to take as many turns as it did and surprising you and, and kind of hitting you in the gut like you just you said. You thought it would stay light heart. and safe through the yeah, whole movie. Yeah, and safe. And, but as soon as I saw those moments, I understood why it was nominated for Best Picture. And I understood why people love this film so much. And then I began to love this film so much is because this movie is saying something. It's screaming something, actually, that is full of heart, like you said earlier. I think it has the strongest voice Mm-hmm. out of any of these best pictures. And that's why personally if I could pick, I would I would probably choose this movie to win because of its heart and I I'm always a sucker for heartfelt stories and underdog stories. Yeah. Um and that's what this movie has going for it. That's why comedy and satire is so good cuz you can bring people into the fold and help them consider something from an alternate point of view that initially they would, you know, typically be turned away from, but comedy when done right can bring people together in that way. One of the themes in this movie was something that Scarlett Johansson's character said in talking about her son, Jojo, because Jojo is a nationalist. Well, he's been indoctrinated. And been drinking the Kool-Aid. She's talking to another character saying, I'm afraid that he's too far gone, but she keeps trying to steer him gently in the right direction, kind of showing him the beauty behind life and and what it means to be a good person or be kind or have a good day, which is the opposite of everything that it is to be a Nazi. And I thought that that was an interesting dynamic to hear that, to kind of hear her inner dialogue when she's saying it out loud to a character, how do I steer my child in this right direction? It's something that I think about a lot because I'm like, how do I raise a kid to become a kind and compassionate adult? 
And she had to do it subtly as well. Yeah. Like, especially in Nazi Germany, she couldn't have these conversations overtly with her son because there was even the possibility that her son could turn her in to the SS. And yeah. And she would be taken away. So you have to be very careful about it. And in the way she lived her life, hopefully her son would be able to pick up on those attributes like empathy and compassion that were completely devoid <laughs> in the Nazi ideology. Her son, in a lot of ways, was already very mature even as a 10-year-old boy, because the war and the world that he lived in ripped him up so quickly to be a soldier. He doesn't know everything. The, the world that he was told was right and true is, in fact, not good. It's not right and true. Yeah, the maturity of JoJo's character really comes through Roman Griffin Davis's acting. Um, that young actor does such a good job. And, you know, they, they did a really good job casting him. Shout out to that, that casting director, if not Taika himself. Really, really did a good job casting. It's really hard to work with kids. I think Taika has said that very a lot about this film. He's like, I don't know if I ever want to work with kids again, but I really enjoyed making this movie. Yeah, he might have just been saying it, but he did say that as soon as he saw Roman, he knew that he was the one. Right. A lot of the things in this movie that seemed uh, exaggerated, or like or, caricatures of what really happened. Or most likely, yeah. Yeah, Taika's, he said he did the research and a lot of these, even down to the, the silly things they would do, even down to children having to go around and collect metals and other materials to support the war effort, like door-to-door salesmen. These are things that actually happened towards the end of the war because they were so desperate. I think it's important that it was made now instead of eight years ago. Mm. Yeah, that actually... It seems more socially relevant than ever at this time in America. Right. You know, the morality of blindly following a dogma or any kind of social system or political belief or religious belief or anything. Anytime you blindly follow something like that and you become a zealot for a cause that you need to think about where you're coming from and what you're doing. Yeah, in a very macro sense, the largest theme in this movie is, I think, what it means to be human. Yeah. Um, and to you, care for you, you have the dehumanizing of a group of people, then the, the humanizing uh, brought back to life in the characters as they're learning and growing throughout the, the film. And the theme of freedom and what it means to, to dance is to, to be free. Yeah, that um, was a good line. I thought that that was a, a really impactful thing because i think i think dancing music in general is a very human thing when you think about what it is to dance it's it's something that happens naturally from even birth you know like mm. you start to feel something when you when you hear a beat or listen to music and you move your body it's this really organic thing this this movie i think hit on such an organic level in what it means to be human also along the way trying to teach the audience that's watching this film, but also the main character in the film who's 10 years old, how not to dehumanize others. And I thought that that was just honestly a brilliant move that is happening in the subtext of the writing of this film. Yeah. I just had a fun fact for you. Sure. They shot a lot of the interior. Fun fact time. Yeah. They <laughs> shot a lot of the interiors for this movie at Berendov Studios in the Czech Republic, which was occupied in World War II by the Nazi army. Oh. And a lot of Nazi propaganda was churned out at that studio by Joseph Goebbels, who was the he was in charge of that. He was very close with Hitler. So it's interesting to see a place that was used as an instrument of war and ignorance and indoctrination at the time this movie was set. And now it's being used to do the opposite. And it's spreading the message of love, and compassion, what it means to be a human. Yeah. It's a nice studio from all accounts. 
I really liked the production design in this film. That'll probably be what it wins. <laughs> I loved this movie a lot. And in another universe, I think this movie is winning Best Picture. That universe was uh, 2019 Earth. <laughs> or 2018. The Green Book year, as we said. I on, I, I think it could have won that year. It sure. would have won. Yeah. Let's close this up. Yeah. Let's, let's wrap it up. Can I close it with a yeah. quote? Close it with a quote. So I wanted to close this off today with the quote from the film. It really kind of summarizes what it means to be human, especially in today's society with things being so full of stress and disillusionment. Dehumanization. And dehumanization. (laughs) This quote at the end of Jojo Rabbit is by the poet Rainer Maria Rilke from the poem, Go to the Limits of Your Longing. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Mm. And that's the cast. That's the cast. See y'all next time for the ninth and final installment of the Best Picture nominee series. That's the Cult Popcast. And as always, don't just take our word for it. Go look it up yourself. (laughs) And don't dehumanize one another. Humanize one another. Yeah. Build each other up. Go dance with each other. (laughs) Ha ha ha.